Welcome to Boundaries of Expression and the first in a special series on the right to protest to mark the publication of Article 19's new report. We're looking at the environment and the risks and challenges for protesters fighting to protect the planet, just ahead of the United Nations Conference on Climate Change in Egypt, COP27. Activists around the world are on the front line, facing intimidation and violence in their often courageous efforts to defend the environment. And the Egyptian government, host of the summit, is no friend of protest, routinely harassing and arresting activists and restricting the space for their work. So this is a decidedly hostile setting for a cause that has activism and campaigning at its heart. Protesters will not be allowed anywhere near the summit, but confined in a designated location. Today, we're talking to environmental campaigners in Egypt and Kenya, one of the focus countries in Article 19's report. Our reporter, Nicola Kelly, went to meet the British-Egyptian activist Mona Saif, who's holding a sit-in at the Foreign Office in London in the run-up to COP27. Well, it's a beautiful autumnal day here in central London. I'm just outside the wrought iron gates opposite the entrance to the very regal Foreign Office, just off Whitehall in the political heart of the capital. There are chauffeur-driven Bentleys and Rolls-Royce depositing ministers and ambassadors for crucial meetings to discuss world affairs. And the woman I'm here to meet, Mona Safe, hopes that her brother's case will be high on their list of priorities. The pro-democracy activist Allah Abdel Fattah has been on hunger strike for more than 200 days in a Cairo prison, having spent most of the last decade behind bars in Egypt. The UN Climate Change Summit will take place in Sharm el-Sheikh and Mona, along with other members of her family, hopes that global scrutiny of the Egyptian government will put more pressure on the authorities there to release him. They've set up camp here beside me, outside the Foreign Office in a blue tent, and here they will stay until the COP27 takes place, calling for Allah to be brought home. I'm Mona Saif. I'm Ali Abdel Fattah's sister. Um, I'm here right in front of the FCZO building uh, in the sit-in stage by our family. It's actually our younger sister, Sana, who decided to start the sit-in last week uh, when Ali completed 200 days of hunger strike. Tell us about what you're doing here. Um, why now? Why this moment? And why, why a sit-in? As a family and, and supporters here, we've been trying to urge the British government to intervene on Ali's behalf as he is a British citizen. And as this is by the Egyptian law, there's a legal possibility, there's a legal path for it. And there's political precedence where other countries like US and Canada and France have managed before to extradite their political prisoners from prisons in Egypt. And especially now that COP27 is happening very soon in November in Egypt and because the UK is actually handing over the administrative managerial process of COP, of COP because they were hosting it last year and so they are handing it over to Egypt and because of the so many projects and investments and bilateral ventures that exist between both governments, uh, Egypt and the UK, we kind of, <laughs> we thought it would be easier to push for Alex's case and to actually get him, you know, released. But it was harder than we expected. It, it wasn't just harder than we expected to get him released, it's harder to get him any kind of basic rights. Um, to imagine that there's a British 
citizen in prison who is not allowed consular visits since December. And with Ali's hunger strike breaking the 200 days, we are growing desperate. We are growing desperate and we are feeling that if nothing shifts drastically soon with how the UK government is handling Ali's case, uh, we are going to lose him. What would happen to you if you staged this sit-in in Egypt? You know, how, <laughs> describe to us, for people who, who don't know, just how brutally people are cracked down on, you know, if you, if you try to, to, to voice your, your opinions, to try to, to push for any change. What would happen to you? So I can't tell you what would happen if I do that, because the main thing with the Egyptian regime is it's unpredictable. You can expect violence, you can expect brutality, but they are really unpredictable. And there are no red lines. They are, they operate <clears throat> with the notion, and they've earned that notion, that they are above any kind of accountability, and so they can do anything. But I can share a small experience with you. Um, and actually, it, it is the kind of, it was the turning point for me and it is when I decided that I no longer want to live in Egypt. So 2020, after Ali was just rearrested, um, Ali was rearrested September 2019. Um, 2020 in June, the pandemic was like a global crisis, and for some reason, the Egyptian regime were dealing with it as they do with everything, as if it's a national security issue rather than a global health issue, and they locked down the prisons completely. And so we had no news uh, from prisons and with us at that point, they wouldn't allow letters. So for months, we didn't know anything about Ali. And my mother was going every day, trying every day, every day with letters, trying to get any news about Ali. Nothing was happening. We filed complaints everywhere. And then eventually she got fed up and she decided she's going to sleep to spend the night in front of prison until she hears something about Ali. She spent the first night and then we joined her the next day, me and Sene. And we spent the whole night there, not even with tents, just just sitting on the side of the pavement in front of prison, just like here, using social media to try and generate a bit of attention and pressure, saying we don't know anything about Ali, this is unacceptable. And a police, like a police van came, they asked us what we were doing, we said what we are doing, they made a lot of phone calls and they left, so we thought it passed in peace. And the next morning, we were just about to leave for Mama to go back home and rest for a bit and then return again. And they sent us a group of women thugs. They beat us up, they dragged us, they stole all of our belongings. All of this happening in broad daylight under the watch of like an enormous guarding force of police that are, you know, guarding this whole complex. Some of them know us. <coughs> We were beaten very badly. Sene, in particular, the youngest, was beaten horribly. Uh, she was beaten with, um, with a baton, with a stick, on her head and on her back. Eventually, we managed to leave, and we went home. We recorded what's happening. We went home. Sene was, needed to be monitored for 24 hours to make sure that she doesn't have a concussion. And the next day, we needed to, we we insisted to go with a group of lawyers to the general prosecutor uh, to make a complaint, but this time to insist that we get um, examined on the spot to prove the injuries we had. 
And when we were at the general prosecutor, state security came in a van, abducted Sanae. She faced state security prosecution. She ended up being charged with assaulting an officer. She went on trial and she got a year and a half in prison. So this tells you, you know, <laughs> and for them to take the decision to be that violent with us means that other families would have even faced much, much worse if they had even attempted, you know, to do a tenth of what we were doing. What do you think about the decision of COP27 being held in Egypt, you know, a country that sort of systematically, routinely crushes all dissent? And what's what's in it for Sisi? What do you think he sees this as? Is, is it a kind of political platform rather than anything to do with the environment or climate change? It was really a shock, that, a shock for me that Egypt was chosen as the first, you know, African country to host COP27. And honestly, I think it reflects how unserious COP is about tackling and addressing climate issues. Because if you choose a country that for the past eight years has been, has been locking up every single activist and every single person who dares to proposes a different narrative than the government, and if you choose a country who cracks down on journalism, civil society, uh, blocks most of, blocks all independent um, media platforms, blocks even, you know, internationally recognized organizations like Human Rights Watch. Human Rights Watch is not, is, as a website and as an info, is not accessible to Egyptians while in Egypt because it's blocked. When you look at that, and also add to it that this is a country whose major investment approach and construction approach was a, over the past five years was about building as many bridges and as many prisons, new prisons as possible. All the while eradicating any greenery that is left in the big cities like Cairo and, and others. If you look at that, it, it seems kind of ridiculous for this country to be hosting COP27. So before before wondering about what that tells you about Egypt, I think it also tells you about other countries and about other governments and about the world in general, um, that they aren't taking COP27 or COP in general seriously. Because if they do, if it's about discussions, if it's about coming up with, with collective solutions, then you would have definitely not made it somewhere like Egypt, especially Egypt in Abdel Fattah Sisi's rule. And the way the government has been already utilizing the past couple of weeks before COP, it's telling you that COP27 is going to be used as a major PR and, you know, greenwashing for all the atrocities committed by this regime. And this is why we've been reaching out to climate activists, because it's not just about how our, you know, struggles are interlinked, because you can't have, you can't have people dealing on climate justice when you don't have any kind of freedom of speech and freedom of organization and discussion and so on, but also because in reality, the true allies of the climate movement, the true vocal people and active people who would be an asset to um, working collectively on climate issues are those in prison right now in Abdel Fattah Sisi's prison. They are not Abdel Fattah Sisi's regime, they are not the Egyptian government, they are not those in power, they are the people in prison, not just my brother, but so many others. 
How free will these climate protesters at the COP be to actually express their opinions? I mean, the fact that it's in Sharm el-Sheikh alone is enough. I mean, the fact that it's kind of like a, a region almost, or like a state that's kind of cordoned off from the rest of Egypt and so completely different culturally, politically, environmentally from the rest of the country. What, what do you expect will happen to, to the protesters if they attempt to, to voice their concerns? I can't even imagine. Like, we, what we have seen over the past years is this is a regime incapable of accepting even, you know, a mere disagreement, Facebook posts. So the idea that there will be civil society and organizations and activists from all over the world who are used to, you know, engaging and being vocal and protesting and, 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 and shaming governments and, you know, talking loud and clear and being really vocal to be there in Egypt in a country that is incapable of tolerating any kind of difference is is really unimaginable. From now until COP, Egyptians are going to be facing escalating uh, intimidation uh, and constrictions leading up to COP. Because one, they wouldn't want to have a lot of Egyptians anywhere, anywhere near um, Sharm el-Sheikh where, where COP is being held. Already we are hearing stories about random searches in downtown where they are looking through uh, youth's uh, Facebook posts and, and their social media accounts, forcing, forcing them to, to, to open their social media accounts so they can look through them and decide whether or not. So the intimidation has already started. And, you know, we are a month away. So we know, Egyptians just know that this is going to go on. The approach of this government is that they need to contain Egyptians as much as possible to put on the facade that everything is well and everything is fine and make sure that whoever comes does not actually interact with Egyptians who are going to say what's on their minds. On the other hand, you have announcements from the Egyptian government that they have uh, created a specific area for participants of COP27 to uh, protest and it's going to be well serviced with restaurants. <laughs> so this is also, <laughs> this gives you an insight into the mentality of the government, you know, running everything there and the government we sadly had to, had to have to endure uh, for years now. In Kenya, campaigners also face harassment and intimidation from the authorities when they exercise their right to protest to protect the environment. Raya Famao Ahmed is a leading activist in Kenya. She was a key part of a remarkable campaign, Save Lamu, that managed to stop the building of a coal-fired power plant in Lamu, a UNESCO World Heritage Site on the southeast coast. It was a grassroots campaign that built regional and international support to win the case. Raya spoke to me from outside her office where she's founder and CEO of Lamu Women Alliance. The project cost was 200 billion Kenya shillings. So this was a, a, a big project to our country. So of course, you wouldn't expect the people who wanted to do this business just to let it go like that. So when we started to oppose the project, people were threatening and telling us that it's very scary because this is a government project. Something might happen to you guys because the government will not let this pass just like this. So one time when we were opposing the project, 
some policemen were sent to my house. So when I looked outside my house, I saw 10 policemen. They were wearing their uniforms. They were carrying guns. They were carrying the wooden sticks, very big ones. So when they were knocking, I asked them, what do you want? They said, we have information that you have a weapon in your house. Then I was like, a weapon? No, I don't have, you, you open or we are going to break the door in front. So because they were carrying guns and the wooden, the big wooden sticks, I was afraid and there was no man inside my house. I opened and they entered into my house, 10 of them. So they started searching my house one by one, room by room. So when they went to my room, uh, some of the rooms, my two sons were sleeping and they were very young boys. So they were scared when they woke up and they saw we have 10 police men inside the house and uh, they, they were carrying guns. So the small one started crying and asking me, Mama, what's happening? And I told them, I even don't know what they want to do here. So let's just pray that they come out peacefully and they don't say that I have done something bad. So they asked me for my identification card. I gave them, then they asked, what's, what's the work that you are doing? I told them, I'm an activist. I'm gender stroke environmental activist. I help uh, women and uh, environment issues. After searching, they talked with one another and then they say, okay, just close your door and you sleep with your children. So they went away. And your campaign also, the offices were raided, weren't they? So personally, I was attacked. They then went to the Sevlam offices and they confiscated the laptop there. They went and searched the, the accounts. They wanted to know where we get our money for implementing the project. Like there's a network, bad people that are giving us money. And it was just a threat, just to make us scared, just to say that we no longer want to follow the call issues. You held protests, you held demonstrations, didn't mm. you? Oftenly we do demonstrations. And what happened when you did that? Did you have a lot of problems when you held demonstrations? You know, uh, legally you are allowed to do processions, demonstrations, but you just have to notify the police that tomorrow you are doing this and this. But what happens here, because it's a perceived as a government project, they do not want us to tell people the, the effects of coal power plants. So when you go and notify them, they will tell you, no, don't go ahead because it's going to cause uh, a lot of insecurity issues. You're going to cause conflicts between the community. So we normally don't listen to them. We go ahead and sometimes they come and they disperse us not to do the demonstrations. And there was this one time that some of, of our colleagues were doing demonstrations and they were arrested. You know, sometimes we, we manage to do the procession without them. Sometimes we choose a place where the police are very far. So by the time they hear what we have done, it's all over the news. And sometimes we do it just uh, in the central place. That's when they come and they disperse us. But we make sure by the time they come, 
the information is out. We have videos, we have everything, and it goes viral, and sometimes they are scared, they feel bad to attack us, but sometimes they arrest us. Arrest us. But because we are working very closely with even the, the legal uh, networks, so the lawyers, they would come on board and bail us out and also help us to come out from the court cases. Right. It must have taken a lot of courage to continue yes. with the campaign. Yes, very true. And how did you and your colleagues find that courage when you're being intimidated by the police, when you're not being com- given permission to hold protests? You know, yeah, you know, activism is a calling, is a passion. It's something that it's in you. And you feel like sometimes you feel like quitting, but there are voices behind your your brain telling you not to stop because these people need you to stand for them. You are their voices. You are the people who are going to save them because most of them are very scared to do the things that we are doing. So because it's a calling from God, I believe it's a calling from God, it gives us strength to continue on. And do you think that the laws need to change in Kenya to protect the right to protest, to protect the kind of work that you're doing? Because we have changed our constitution in 2010, we have a whole chapter that talks about the Bill of Rights and the rights of the citizen, rights of the arrested person, accused person, rights to demonstrate, right to picket, everything. There's a whole chapter about human rights. But the problem is the people who are in power, they abuse that. They don't want uh, their fellow citizens to enjoy the Bill of Rights. So it's not about uh, changing the laws or it's just respecting the rule of law and implementing the Constitution. The Human Rights Organization, Article 19, who we're doing this podcast for, they've said that the harassment and intimidation that people like yourself face is something that has been putting activists off from protesting. And I wonder if that's something that you've seen happening. Here in Kenya, we have witnessed activists who have disappeared, activists who have been killed, activists who have been injured, and they would look for any case and they tag it to you so that you can be arrested and they make you suffer in their hands, in the hands of the government. So there are activists who up to now, nobody know their whereabouts. There are activists who have been killed. There are activists who have been sacked from their areas where they are working so that they cannot continue work. And sometimes they lock you from all the potential opportunities that you can get or you are supposed to get as a citizen only because you are an activist. What do you think needs to happen to make the authorities, the police, respect the rule of law? I think more advocacy, grassroots advocacy to the community to understand their laws, their policies, even the role of the government, the role of the community. They need to know because most of the people are scared of the government and sometimes they forget that we are the government. 
because we pay taxes to pay them their salary. They are in the office because of us. So, and in case there's any violation, there are laws that can, can be taken against the government. And one of the examples that we are telling our people is with the coal power plant project, they were all saying this is a government project. We went to court and the project was cancelled. So we are the government. We are the power. We are the people. Eva Maria Anyango Okoth is a senior program officer with Natural Justice in Kenya, working with local marginalised communities to protect their environmental and human rights. Her organisation was part of the legal challenge to stop the building of the power plant in Lamu. I asked her whether she agreed with Rhea that part of the problem for activists like her is the failure of respect for the rule of law in Kenya. What we have seen is the failure of implementation, and I can say effective implementation of the law. And this is something that has been very common because when it comes to effective public participation, for instance, we have seen it being done in a very formalistic way and not in line with the true spirit of the Constitution regarding public participation and what it seeks to achieve. So what do you think needs to happen to change the situation? Some of the reasons why the law is not being complied with is because there are certain gaps that are not addressing the issues. So for instance, when we speak about policy reform, a lot needs to be done when it comes to strengthening provisions on public participation, strengthening provisions on access to justice, and also strengthening provisions around how environmental due diligence is being conducted. And then secondly, I think we need to continuously hold duty bearers accountable for their actions and monitor compliance more closely with the law. And this presents an opportunity for us to file complaints where violations are taking place and raise it with the relevant authorities. And if that does not work or where administrative institutions are not responding, then there's avenues to explore judicial mechanisms where people can bring their grievances to the courts. Now, Article 19 are about to publish a report on the right to protest, and Kenya is one of the focus countries. One of the points that they make in the report is that in Kenya, because of the intimidation tactics against protesters, that some people are more afraid of the consequences of protesting than they are of the injustices they're protesting about and they actually stop being activists or at least they stop exercising their right to protest. I wonder if that's something that you see happening. This is something very common and ultimately the goal of people who restrict the right to protest is essentially to silence people who you know, stood up and spoken against it. That's the ultimate goal. And the reason it often works is because when you look at activists and specifically communities who are involved in environmental activism, 
They are, it's really a fight for their lives, you know. They are, first of all, people who are historically man- marginalized, both economically and in terms of development. And because they are perceived as people who do not have power, then they are taken advantage of. When where such instances of intimidation arise, it's a question of what are you willing to give up? Is it your life, your family, or is it the struggle, the larger struggle you're looking at? And it's a very difficult decision to make. And I believe as humans, most of the time, when you compare the decision they have to make, uh, you you will lean towards trying to secure and preserve yourself so that you are able to also uh, care for your loved ones, care for people around you. And I specifically want to maybe make reference to experiences of women, uh, you know, and women are really vulnerable when it comes to such threats because they have children, they are caring for society, they are sole breadwinners in their families. And so when they have to make a decision between the two, the greater right, or, you know, uh, also taking care of their family and balancing. Sometimes they will always be intimidated and, you know, choose to shy away from from engaging in protests. So I believe there isn't equal power when it comes to uh, such cases. As you know, COP27 is about to start in a country where there are significant restrictions on freedom of expression, on the right to protest. And environmental protest is part of a growing, urgent global movement with democracies as well as authoritarian regimes cracking down. And on the eve of COP27 of this very important international summit, I wonder what you see as necessary for protecting the right to protest in a climate that is actually quite hostile. So I think... In terms of what is necessary at the moment is for civil society to come together to, you know, put in place measures to be able to protect communities who are going to COP and who might be apprehensive that going to COP and coming back to their countries might present some dangers to them. So I think we should work together as probably civil society to put in place measures on how we can stand with communities and other activists who are likely to face danger, you know. So it would entail more proactive approaches like having risk assessments um, in terms of what could potentially happen and having mitigation measures in place. And then secondly, I think... We should use this platform, COP27, as a platform to air these concerns and raise concerns around how civic space is being restricted and how the right to protest is being restricted in various countries. So this should be definitely in the agenda because we cannot say we are participating in COP or we cannot say that government is effectively engaging people if the right to protest and the right to express your opinions is not being respected. So I think this should be one of the key messaging or agenda that is brought to COP27 and that government should commit to more concretely in terms of putting in place measures around respect for this right. So you're going to COP? Yes, I will be going to COP. And uh, we will be hosting a side event at COP on 12th around the protection of environmental human rights defenders 
And so we are going to be pushing for governments to, you know, um, ensure that environmental human rights defenders are protected and respected for their work and that they are not threatened because of the work they are engaging in. You've been listening to Boundaries of Expression from Article 19, produced and presented by Joe Glanville and Nicola Kelly, recorded and mixed at Bison Studios in London. Look out for our next podcast in the series on women and the right to protest. If you'd like to find out more about Article 19's work defending freedom of expression and read the new report on protest, please visit article19.org. 